Welcome, dear listener, to Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. Set aside some moments now and take an adventurous ride on a journey into the psyche of some talented writers. They will dig into your being and titillate you. Oh, I love that word, titillate. While the stories may not all take place in the heartland, I am delivering them to you from the heartland. My intention is to strike fear and confusion into the mind, soul, and yes, the heart. This is Fear from the Heartland. Hello, Heartlanders, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 14 of Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and all our other episodes, as well as hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today to get instant access from our friends at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Thank you for your support. Noob, newbie, FNG, just some slang I've been called as I encountered new endeavors over my life. Many times I was downright offended. Most times I took it good-naturedly as it was intended as such. How in the hell are you supposed to get experience without being a rookie? My first padded room was literally a closet in our home. I spent many hours in that claustrophobic sweat room trying to hone my narration skills, feeling ever much like a noob. One day, I believe it was in 2013, I answered the phone from my oldest son. He asked me what I was doing. Very innocently, I said I had just come out of the closet. He laughed and said he had to go. And five minutes later, he posted our conversation on Facebook. God, that kid. He was the reason I was a newbie father. Anyway, we have two new authors, newbies to fear from the heartland for you tonight. I bring you the works of Kendra Nicholson and E.J. Friedel. Let's get after it. Welcome Home is not just a good old-fashioned ghost story. It's also about love, loss, and loneliness and the lengths that one might go to in order to have someone to spend eternity with. And now, for your indulgence, Welcome Home by Kendra Nicholson. Chapter One Eli was startled by the sound of a key in the front door. He had been resting in the upstairs bedroom. He couldn't sleep anymore and hadn't been able to do so in weeks. He missed it. He hadn't left the house in weeks either, so he was missing many things right now. He listened as the door opened and then he quietly crept into the closet, leaving the door ajar. He squeezed as far back into the corner as he was able, slid down the wall, and sat with his knees pulled up to his chest, his arms wrapped tightly around his legs. Then he waited. He could hear footsteps downstairs, crossing from the living room through the dining area and into the kitchen, where the intruder began opening and closing cabinet doors. 
When he used to get anxious, he would feel his heart rate quicken. His breathing would become shallow and his palms would feel damp with sweat. Now it feels different. Now it is as though he spent most of his time in a fog and when something made him anxious, he simply felt more alert. The fog would lift and things would appear more clearly. The soft focus would become dialed in and he could see color and sharp edges. He realized that the intruder was now coming up the stairs. The footsteps were light and feminine. It was a woman. He could smell her before she entered the room, even though he wasn't breathing. The scent still clung to his nostrils. It was clean and sweet, lavender and vanilla. He closed his eyes and let it soak in. It brought back memories of his wife that were so intense that he could almost feel her warm body next to his. He felt the cool darkness of a shadow across the door opening and was shaken from his reverie. He opened his eyes and was so stunned that his mouth dropped open and he stared at her. She stood at the opening of the closet and seemed to look right through him. She was exquisite, petite and slender, with dark shoulder-length wavy hair tucked behind her ears and warm hazel eyes that were brown around her pupils, blending into green. Her phone rang loudly and he jumped as she turned away to answer it. Hello? Yes, this is Becca. Oh, hi. I'm in the house right now, actually. Yeah, I didn't have any trouble with the lockbox. Oh my god, I love it. It's perfect. I want to make a bid before anyone else sees it. Her voice faded as she exited the room and made her way down the stairs. Eli crawled out of the closet and stood up. He felt foolish for hiding in his panic. He knew that she would not have been able to see him. No one can see the dead. Chapter 2 Eli could remember the last time he heard feminine feet padding up the stairs. He didn't know how long it had been, though. He no longer had any feeling for the passage of time. Caitlin had come into the room, sat on the edge of the bed, and gently laid her cool, dry hand on his forehead. It took every bit of strength he had to open his eyes. She smiled, took his hand, and said, Hey, look who's awake! Her eyes glistened with unshed tears as she smiled at him. He tried to open his lips to speak, but they were dry, and he had to peel them apart. He was so dehydrated that his tongue was stuck to the roof of his mouth. He still had canker sores from his chemotherapy, and just moving his mouth that tiny bit proved painful. He grimaced. Let me get you some ice chips, she said as she started to stand, but Eli squeezed her hand tightly and held her there. He swallowed, trying to moisten his mouth enough to talk, his voice coming out in a gravelly whisper. No. Stay. Please. She nodded her head and the tears that she had been holding back began to roll down her cheeks. He tilted his chin up and to the side, which she knew meant that he wanted her to lie beside him with her face nuzzled into the crook of his neck. Her warmth comforted him and he tried to stay awake and savor it, but he was so very sleepy that he couldn't keep his eyelids open and soon he drifted off. He woke to the sound of Caitlin crying. He had become accustomed to her quiet sobbing, but this was different. This was a high-pitched keening that sounded almost like an animal. He felt different. He realized that the intense pain that had been his constant companion since before his diagnosis of pancreatic cancer was gone, as was his weakness and fatigue. He sat up and looked at her as she stood stooped over beside the bed with one hand across her stomach and the other over her mouth. 
and said in a clear voice, Caitlin, it's okay. I'm okay. Kate, please listen to me. But she didn't even glance in his direction. She kept staring down at the bed where he had been lying and she began to speak, saying, No, 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 no. I'm not ready. I need more time. No, please. He turned to look at what had drawn her attention and it didn't make any sense. It was him. He was lying on his back with his dry cracked mouth open in a surprised O, with his eyes open and unseen. He could only stare at the scene in disbelief, wondering how on earth this could be happening. How could he be looking at his own dead body? How? Eli didn't believe in ghosts. Chapter 3 Eli spent the first hours after his death trying to let Caitlin know he was there. She couldn't hear him speak. She couldn't see him. She couldn't feel him. He even tried running past her, waving his arms, but he couldn't even move the air. He was without substance. All he could do was watch her weep. He followed her as she made phone calls to tell people he had died. He watched her kiss his forehead and hold his hand one last time. He stood by and watched them take his body away. She began packing the next morning. Her parents and her brother came to help. She said she just couldn't live there without him. I'm here, Kate. I'm still here, he said over and over. He watched as the house got emptier and emptier. He tried to go outside and follow them to the truck, but when he got to the open door, something stopped him. He couldn't move past the threshold. It was as if he was tethered to the house. There was no physical barrier that he could see. He was simply unable to get out the door. After everyone else left, Caitlin took one last walk through each room, touching door frames and windows, and he followed, knowing that this was the last time he would ever see her again. She stopped at the front door and turned back into the room. She closed her eyes, swallowed, and said, Goodbye, Eli. He was so overcome with despair that he felt an ache in his chest. He ran to her and tried to wrap her in his arms. Her eyes flew open and she gasped and shivered. Eli? Yes, yes, I'm here, he said. She just shook her head, turned, and walked out the door. Chapter 4 Eli sits across the table from Becca, watching her eat a clementine. What he wouldn't give to do that one more time. If he were alive again, he would never take an experience like that for granted. He imagines the weight of the fruit in his hand. He can almost feel the smooth, shiny texture of the peel. He pictures himself using his fingernail to pry up the corner of the sticker and tugging it, feeling the resistance as it let go and came away from the skin of the fruit. He imagines rolling it into a tiny tube that he continues to work between his finger and thumb before sticking it to a paper towel that is laid out in front of him. He sees himself poking the tip of his thumb into the top, popping a hole in the skin and pulling it back with ease. He used to try to get it off in one piece and he would look at his thumb and see the orange stain under his short nail. He could smell the sweet citrus perfume that used to make his jaw hurt a little, thinking of the tartness of it as his mouth watered pulling off the little strings that remained stuck to the fruit after the peel was gone. 
he missed everything about being alive. Now he passed his time following Becca around the house when she was there and waiting for her when she wasn't. At first, he felt intrusive and creepy, and he would leave the room when she was undressing or showering. But being dead was lonely, and frankly, it was also incredibly boring. Eli was bored as hell. He finally gave in and began staying in the room no matter what she was doing. He didn't watch her undress and bathe because it aroused him. He did it because watching her do normal things, watching her live her life, made him feel alive. He followed her everywhere in the house like a devoted dog. He watched her undress and shower. He watched her brush her teeth. He watched her eat. He watched her watch television. She was far more interesting to him than what was happening on the screen. He had even begun crawling into bed with her, lying next to her, watching her sleep at night. When she would leave the house, he would sit at the top of the stairs and let the fog settle in until she returned and there was clarity again. Eli was obsessed with her. She was his life. Chapter 5 Eli stood at the edge of the kitchen watching Becca pour ground sausage crumbles into a colander, draining the fat and water into a bowl. She put it back on the stove and popped open a jar of sauce and poured it in, giving it a stir. She checked to see if the water was boiling yet, then poured some salt into her hand and sprinkled it in. The activity was mesmerizing. She never cooked like this. She typically brought home styrofoam containers of takeout from local restaurants. He loved it when she brought home shepherd's pie from Llewellyn's pub down the street. If he closed his eyes and let the smell drift into his nose, he was taken back to the bustling little dining area. He could almost taste the malty, bittersweet coffee flavors in the Guinness he always ordered. He heard the doorbell ring and saw her grab a kitchen towel and wipe her hands as she hurried to the door. She opened it, and there stood a woman who looked very similar to her, but a little heavier and a little older. She was carrying a small boy. There he is, she shouted gleefully. Come to Auntie Becca. He reached his hands straight out and fell toward her from his mother's arms. She grabbed him in a hug and said, I made your favorite. Puschetti, he yelled, and both women laughed. Eli couldn't help but smile himself. He hadn't seen people this joyful for a very long time. Even the last few weeks of his life here with Caitlin weren't spent truly living. They were spent dying, and there is very little joy to be found in that. They continued to fawn over the boy until he wiggled and grunted to be put down. He immediately ran out of the room with his mother chasing him. Becca finished cooking dinner, set the table, and yelled, Kara, Jack-Jack, it's Paschetti time. They came in and sat at the table, and Eli stood back and watched. Jack held his small spoon in one hand and ate handfuls of spaghetti with the other, cramming his little fistful of noodles into his mouth. He suddenly stopped, looked up at Eli, and stared without blinking, food forgotten. Eli was stunned. He held up his hand and gave a small wave. Jack uncurled his fingers and waved back. He could see him. Could he hear him too? Hi. Jack smiled and said, Hi. Both women looked at him in confusion, laughed, and Kara said, Well, hi to you too, and went back to her dinner. Eli slowly put his hands over his face, then pulled them away quickly and said, Peekaboo. 
Jack laughed and it made Eli smile. Becca and Kara stopped talking and Kara said, What's so funny? Jack pointed at Eli. Both women turned to look and saw nothing. Kara looked confused and said, The wall? Is the wall funny? Eli again covered his face with his hands and did it again. Peekaboo. Jack laughed even harder this time and yelled, Peekaboo. Becca stopped laughing and nervously asked, What? What do you see, Jack-Jack? Kara said, Becca, for crying out loud, it's probably an imaginary friend. That's totally normal. Becca shook her head. No, Kara, it's not. That is not normal for a two-year-old. Jack-Jack, what do you see, sweetie? Jack pointed at Eli and said, Him. Him? Him who? Who is him? Is someone there, Jack? Jack tilted his head to the side and stared at Eli. Eli pointed at his chest and said, My name is Eli. Jack looked at Becca and said, Him, Ey. She just stared for a moment, then she said, Ey. Eli? Did you say his name is Eli, sweetie? Jack nodded his head, pointed back at Eli, and, Ey, Peterboo. She turned to her sister and said, Who is Eli? Does he have a friend named Eli? Is there anyone you know named Eli? Kara just shook her head no and looked at the blank wall that Jack was staring at. Jack, Becca said, who is Eli? Who are you playing peekaboo with? Jack looked to Eli for help answering the question, so he said, this is my house. I live, I mean, I lived here. I died in this house. Jack turned to his aunt and said, him house, him die. Then he put his little hands over his face, pulled them away, and yelled, Peetaboo, Ey, Peetaboo. Chapter 6 Eli sat and watched the computer screen as Becca was doing research to see if she could find him. It didn't take long for her to find his obituary. It was so strange to read about his own death as she quietly read the words aloud. Elias Jonathan Schaefer passed away at home on March 20, 2020, at the age of 42 after a courageous battle with cancer, with his wife Caitlin at his side. She stopped reading and looked over at the wall where Jack had seen him. She nervously said, Eli, are you here? Eli walked over to the area she was looking at and answered, Yes, hoping that perhaps now that she knew about him, she might be able to at least feel him there. It had felt so good to be able to interact with Jack, to be seen, to be heard. He needed that. He needed the connection he felt to another human being. She seemed to be staring directly at him when her phone rang and she screamed, put her hand to her chest, and laughed to herself before she answered. Hey, Kara. Oh, my God. I looked up the previous owners and found his obituary. He died of cancer here in the house. I know, right? I'm completely freaked out. I have always thought ghosts were a load of bullshit. You think you're freaked out? Try being a ghost when you used to think it was bullshit, Eli said. She pulled up Facebook and searched for his name. Okay, I've got his Facebook page here. Oh my God, Kara. It's so sad. Eli looked over her shoulder at his profile picture. It was taken before the cancer diagnosis back when he was healthy and happy. In the picture, he was sitting at a tall outdoor table at Llewellyn's with a pint of Guinness in one hand and his other arm around Caitlin, 
He was smiling and she was looking up at him. The memory made him ache and he felt even more empty than he had before. He was so young and handsome, she said. Eli smiled. Thanks. I wonder if there's something I can do to help him move on. He quickly dropped his smile. Move on? Move on? Where? He asked out loud. Where am I supposed to go? I can't get out of here. I can't leave. The ache he had been feeling deep in his chest was expanding in his torso and moving up into his head. He felt alive. He could feel. And even though it hurt, he wanted to hang on to it because it was the first time his body had felt a real physical sensation since his death. He was devastated, scared, and angry. And it was so strong, it gave him energy. He looked down at the computer screen, and Becca had clicked on Caitlin's Facebook page. They used to have matching profile photos, but Caitlin had changed hers. Now her profile photo showed her smiling at the camera with a strange man who had his arm around her waist, and she leaned into him with her hand on his chest. The ache that Eli felt became sharp and filled his entire body. He collapsed to his knees on the floor, threw back his head, and howled in agony. The light bulb in the fixture above the table exploded and the laptop shut down. Becca shrieked and ran out of the house. Eli went to the window and watched her standing in the front yard staring at the house and crying while still on the phone with Kara. He knew she would be back. She had to come back. At the very least, she would have to pick up her things. He would have to try to be on his best behavior when she did come back because he had lost Caitlin and he couldn't lose Becca too. He wouldn't lose Becca. Come on, Becca, Eli murmured. I can't let you leave. I need you. Come back home. Chapter 7 For two days, Eli sat at the top of the steps in a fog waiting for Becca to come home. She finally came back, clutching a flat box to her chest. He followed her upstairs to the bedroom where she laid the box on the bed and opened it. It was a Ouija board. He chuckled to himself at the thought of her trying a Ouija board. He had heard a story on NPR about the lengths that people would go in order to talk to the dead. The man being interviewed saw it as a bit of a joke. He believed the board merely gave the user a glimpse into their own psyche. This is absolutely ridiculous, said Eli. Becca pulled the board out and laid the planchette in the center of it and said, I have never felt more ridiculous in my life. Eli stood across the room from her, watching and waiting to see what questions she asked. She took a deep, shaky breath and said, Eli, are you here? To his complete and utter shock, Eli began being pulled toward the board. He had no control over his movements at all. His hands were held out in front of him with his arms straight, as if he were being pulled over by his fingers. He floated over to the edge of the bed and dropped down to a sitting position with his fingertips on the planchette. He could feel it. His fingertips were on the teardrop-shaped wooden piece nearly touching her fingers, and he could absolutely feel it. Without any forethought, in fact, in his shock, he had forgotten that she had even asked the question, he began moving the piece toward the word yes. Becca gasped and moved her hands off the planchette and Eli was able to move his hands away too. She sat staring at the board, breathing hard for a few moments. She gathered herself 
and put her fingers back on it, moving it to a neutral position. Okay, so you're here. Okay. My God, this is insane. So, I'm sorry that you're dead. Eli felt no pull toward the board, and when he tried to put his fingers on the planchette to reply, he could no longer feel it. What the hell? She looked puzzled and then said, Oh, oh, that's right. It has to be a question. Okay, um, where did you die in the house? The feeling came back to his fingers, and as he was debating whether to tell her that he died in this room because he didn't want to scare her any more than she was already scared, his fingers began sliding to the first letter. R-I-G-H-T-H-E-R-E -E. Right here? Becca said quietly. Right here in this room? Eli was desperate to move his hands away. If he continued to scare her, she would be gone forever. He would lose her too, but he couldn't stop himself. He couldn't lie and he couldn't refuse to answer. The planchette moved to yes. Becca pulled her hands back as if she had just touched a hot stove. She jumped off the bed and backed away trying to regain her composure while Eli watched helplessly. He felt the small knot of ache begin in his chest. Don't go, please don't go, he begged. Becca sat back down, put her fingertips on the planchette and said, is there something I can do to help you move on? The planchette moved to no. Becca started to whimper in fear. I need you to go, she said. Then she shook her head and said, can you go? Can you leave here? The planchette moved to no. She was crying as she asked, why? Why can't you just leave? Eli wanted to say he didn't know why. He wanted to say that he promised he would leave her alone, that he would be quiet, and she wouldn't even know he was there. But all he could do was move the planchette as his ache grew larger and larger. M-I-N-E Mine? Becca whispered. You are staying because the house is yours? Yes. Do you want me to leave? No. Becca got up and started walking backward toward the bedroom door, saying, Look, Eli, I am sorry that this is happening, but I don't know what to do. I can't live here like this. I have to go. The ache had bloomed throughout his body again, and he felt like he was vibrating. He was frustrated with his inability to communicate through the Ouija board, angry and scared that she was leaving, but with all the overwhelming emotion and pain, he finally felt alive. He felt like he could stop her. He stood and moved toward her. Will you please leave? Becca asked from across the room. Eli was immediately jerked back to the board. His fingers moved to the planchette to no. They both stared at the board in disbelief and Becca said, I have to go. No! Eli raged and the planchette flew across the room slamming into the wall. Becca turned and ran toward the stairs. Eli gave a deep guttural scream and flew into the hallway after her. He overtook her and she could feel his energy. She turned to glance over her shoulder, eyes wide with terror as he threw himself at her. She was pummeled by a cold wave and her feet flew out from under her. Eli watched as she went horizontal and landed on her head about halfway down. Then she flipped like a rag doll onto her back, rolled, and ended up face down on the floor at the bottom of the stairs. Chapter 8 
Becca woke confused, taking inventory of the wounds she knew she would have from the fall. She was surprised at how good she felt for someone who had taken such a tumble. She rolled from her belly onto her side and sat up. She remembered her fear and got to her feet and started toward the front door when she heard an unfamiliar voice behind her. Becca? She froze for a moment and slowly turned around and there was a man sitting at the top of the stairs. She recognized him from his Facebook page, but it made no sense. Eli? She said. Eli nodded his head. Oh, God, Becca whispered. Does that mean I'm... Eli smiled and nodded. He raised an eyebrow and looked down. She followed his gaze and saw her broken body lying on the floor, eyes still wide with fear, her head facing the wrong direction. This can't be happening, she said as she turned and ran to the front door, but when she grabbed for the doorknob, her hand passed through it. She looked back at Eli in horror. Welcome home, Becca. Hope you enjoyed tonight's story, Welcome Home, by Kendra Nicholson. Kendra Nicholson was born and raised in Missouri. She was a stay-at-home mom to two boys for over a decade, then used her degree in theater with a minor in English to perform and teach comedy improv and sketch in the Los Angeles area. She and her husband lost their youngest son to suicide in 2018 and realized what a lack of reading material there is out there for teens who have lost a loved one due to suicide. So she decided to do something about it. She published her first novel in 2020 on what would have been her son's birthday. It is available on Amazon and it's called The Climb. It is written from the perspective of a 13-year-old boy who loses his big brother to suicide as he works through his grief. She and her husband have recently moved back to Missouri and they are happy to be back in the heartland. Desperate times call for desperate measures. Kevin's homeland is deteriorating rapidly and will not be able to sustain his community for much longer. So Kevin has been conscripted to join military efforts to take over new territories. Frightened and overwhelmed, Kevin is consumed by dread as he and the other soldiers are led through a strange, disconcerting landscape. Thoughts of the enemy's notorious weapons terrorize Kevin's mind, and he is anticipating an agonizing death. He wishes he could be anywhere else. But is Kevin really the one who should be afraid? The invasion may not be what it seems. And now, for your indulgence, The Invasion by E.J. Friedel. The procession of soldiers marched with the steady, even rhythm of blood pumping through an artery. Grim-faced and sure-footed, they were fueled by anticipation of the reward that awaited them. Fresh territory laden with resources. But they felt little in the way of excitement. This was a mission for survival, and victory lay on the other side of a formidable enemy. As the soldiers approached the beginning of the next climb, their stoic silence was broken by a sharply shouted, Halt! It had an instant effect, like the flicking of a switch, and dozens of feet stopped in unison. They paused, waiting to be told what to do next. 
The only sound was their collective breathing. We'll rest here a while to gather strength. Drink your water rations and sleep if you can. We're almost there, men. The prize is in our sights, the Major boomed, exuding all the confidence and certainty that someone in his position should. A gentle wave of relief passed over the soldiers as their orderly line dispersed into small clusters and they opened their packs while talking in hushed tones. Flasks came out and water was sipped gratefully. Food rations had run out the day before, so water was all they had left to ingest. Something in the stomach was better than nothing. Still, the hollow sloshing was a visceral reminder of why they had to keep going, what they were fighting for. For Kevin, who has yet to see any action in his military service, the rest stop was welcomed by his aching feet, but it did nothing to settle his anxious mind. He dreaded the prospect of going into battle. He had heard the old-timers' gruesome tales of comrades' mutilations and deaths. He had observed the physical and psychological scars of those who had returned. He wanted no part of it. If he had had a choice, he would have been anywhere else. Why the long face, kid? The question barged into Kevin's looping worries about what was ahead. Huh? He asked, not quite sure who had spoken to him. With the lack of bathing and the lack of food, everyone was starting to look the same. Dirty, thin, and worn out. What's up? The voice had come from a soldier who was sitting in a group close by. Kevin had tried to find a spot on his own that was close enough to others that he could escape notice. His plan had failed, and worse, his inner turmoil was obviously etched into his expression. He wished he could make himself invisible. The other soldier raised his eyebrows in an effort to prompt an answer. Uh, just tired, I guess. Nothing a good night's sleep wouldn't fix, Kevin said, trying his best to appear unfazed. But his youthful bravado didn't fool the veteran soldier, who had seen more than his fair share of gore and more than his fair share of frightened youngsters. He knew what he was looking at. Youth, once protected by a delusional aura of invincibility, now facing its mortality. He had been there once himself, balanced on the knife edge of that revelation. The older soldier gave a knowing half-smile. Just stick with me when we get there. You'll be okay, he said in a soothing fatherly tone, taking one last mouthful from his flask before screwing the lid back on. Kevin wanted to say thank you, a deep heartfelt thank you, but that was at odds with his desperate desire to maintain a tough facade, however flimsy it was. So he said nothing and replied with a short nod instead, hoping the conversation would end there. While the other soldiers' words had brought a small measure of comfort to Kevin, they were nowhere near powerful enough to assuage his fear of the enemy. The tales he had heard of them, their method of killing, would not be so easily dislodged from his consciousness. They used small weapons in huge numbers so that their victims were eaten away in many tiny pieces, death by a thousand cuts. It was an agonizing way to die. Eventually, exhaustion overcame Kevin, and he drifted into a fitful sleep, leaning against his pack. He dreamt he was in a dark, damp place where sound was muted, like underwater. He was huddled in a ball, terrified and feeling that he was being pursued. Everything was unfamiliar, and he didn't know if he was hidden properly, but he didn't know where else to go. So he stayed where he was, frozen with fear, trying to make himself smaller. Then he knew there were others around him even though he couldn't see or hear them. He could sense them. They wanted to do him harm.
and then he heard the whooshing of hundreds of pieces of ammunition flying towards him from every direction. He covered his head and scrunched himself up, bracing for the impact. As the first one touched his skin, he was abruptly ejected from the dream back into reality. Sweaty and still breathing rapidly, Kevin looked around to see if anyone had observed his ungracious exit from slumber. They hadn't. They were all starting to stand up, many of them also groggy from sleep, and hoist their packs onto their backs. There were groans and sighs and lethargic chatter. Kevin felt a rush of cold panic wash over his skin with the realization that they were on the move again. His nightmare had felt more like a premonition, and every step he took was a step closer to a horrible fate. His eyes darted around, searching the heads around him. Quickly and quietly, Kevin wove through the crowd that was slowly restoring its marching order, and he fell in behind the older soldier. They started the steep ascent, which soon became a grind, their legs heavy legs and their stomachs grumbling. But determination overpowered the fatigue as they marched on. One foot in front of the other over and over again, the momentum of the group making up for the waning energy of the individuals within it. Kevin held his gaze on the ground, not wanting to look too far in front of himself. He thought longingly of home, of his family there, of the simple things like sharing a meal and playing with the little ones, laughing together and feeling safe. But it would not be home for much longer, and he would never be able to go back there. The landscape was depleted to the point of no return. There was not enough left to sustain them. Home was dying, and if they didn't find somewhere else soon, they would all die with it. There was no choice. He knew that. The older soldier turned his head to the side, catching a glimpse of Kevin in his peripheral vision. He turned his head a little further and gave Kevin a slow wink. Stay close and don't break from the group. Your best bet is to have others around you. Safety in numbers, the older soldier said, now facing forward and gently tossing the words over his shoulder to Kevin. Kevin greedily hoarded the advice. He clung to everything that could increase his chances of survival, his chances of reuniting with his family in the promised land. The image in his head of being surrounded by his loved ones in a land of abundance gave him a momentary flash of hope, but it didn't last long before it was extinguished by thoughts of the merciless foe they must defeat. The battalion continued to climb up the smooth sand-colored ground, feeling gravity tug at their every upward move. After what seemed like an eternity, the weary soldiers found themselves looking across a plateau covered in a tangled forest of long golden growths. The Major took the changing landscape as an opportunity to lift spirits. We are through the worst of it now, man. We have our courage and the rest of our water rations to get us through the last leg of our journey. Your bravery will be rewarded with untold riches. Drink now, take a minute to collect yourselves, and then we will push on, he bellowed, his encouragement providing a small injection of nourishment for the souls of his soldiers. After wetting their parched throats, they began to push their way through the ropey growths. It was slow going, navigating between and under the densely intertwined vine-like protrusions. It wasn't as bad as the climb before it, but it was no cakewalk either. How you going, kid? The older soldier asked when they climbed, weaved, and belly crawled their way through about half of the forest. I'd be better if we got some clear terrain... Kevin replied, grunting as he squeezed under a thick golden bough. I hear ya. Those were the last words they spoke before they emerged from the forest. 
Popping out of the twisted growths one by one, the soldiers saw a tract of relatively smooth, even terrain leading up to a short, steep rise. They couldn't see it from their vantage point, but they knew that a bit further on from there and down to one side was an enormous cavern. This was what they were aiming for, the entrance to a brand new paradise. The Major kept them marching. He knew that to stop now when they were running on empty could be their downfall. The stream of soldiers continued to take their synchronized steps, relentlessly advancing towards their target. Kevin's stomach was contorting with hunger and his lightheadedness was tipping over into delirium. Everything was beginning to feel disconnected and surreal, like a dream. A very, very bad dream. The older soldier swung his head around, uttering a soft, Chin up, kid. He didn't have much more to offer. By that stage, even the most experienced among their ranks were starting to feel the mental strain and turn inwards to prepare for the fight, which they knew could be their last. The final brief ascent was completed in somber silence. A heavy air of existential contemplation hung over them, following them to the edge of the cavern where they looked down into both the physical and metaphorical abyss. Dark, damp nothingness seemed to be waiting to swallow them up. The Major could gauge what was going on in the company's collective mind, and he held the power to turn it around. The right words at the right time could catalyze psychological transformations. He cleared his throat and spoke with conviction. This is the beginning, my fellow warriors. This is where we reclaim our lives and those of the ones we care about, our families, our community, our entire species. We have made it this far because we are survivors, and we will be triumphant in the end because we are righteous. When we win and commence our rule over this kingdom, we are not just going to gain material wealth. We are securing the future of our kind for many more generations. And that will be all because of you and your willingness to fight for everyone who can't fight for themselves. Your valor will save us all. There was a subtle but significant shift in the soldiers' mental state, a stiffening of their resolve, and a perceptible uptick in morale. Even Kevin felt a tiny pang of pride at his contribution to the greater good. He just hoped with every fiber of his being that it wasn't going to require him to succumb to a horribly drawn-out and painful death. With that, the Major gave the signal to advance. The soldiers spilled over the edge of the sleeping man's lips and into the vast cavern of his open mouth. They readied their weapons to take on the army of his immune system. The invasion had begun. I hope you enjoyed tonight's story, The Invasion, by E.J. Friedel. E.J. Friedel is a lovable oddball inhabiting the bush in southeastern Australia and living cheek by jowl with agile antichinus, dingoes, and lowland copperheads. She likes to start her day with black coffee and a dip in the icy waters of a nearby creek. She likes to end her day listening to creepy podcasts while falling asleep. Once in a blue moon, she even has a crack at writing a story for one of these creepy podcasts. EJ is too misanthropic to participate in social media, and she doesn't have a website because that kind of thing seems like way too much work. But she can be contacted at Emily J. Friedel 
at gmail.com. That's E-M-I-L-Y-J-F-R-I-E-D-E-L at gmail.com. If you enjoyed tonight's story hosted by yours truly, Paul J. McSorley, you can search my name on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for additional previous stories. If you'd like to hear more lengthy tales, be sure to take a look at my audiobooks. Available now on audible.com or just visit paulsbooks.net. That's P-A-U-L-S-B-O-O-K-S dot net. You can also find me personally on Facebook and Twitter. And with that, listeners, our weekly journey into the psyche has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight's episode and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host for Fear from the Heartland, Paul J. McSorley. I've enjoyed the titillation tonight. Ooh, there's that word again. Thank you for joining me. Hope to see you again next week at Fear from the Heartland.